Hey guys, this is Billy Hansen, and welcome to the Lynchburg Neighborhood Podcast. This is a podcast about the Lynchburg area, its people, and its history. I found that the more I get to know my neighbors, really get to know their stories, and the more I understand the history and the backstory and how things work here in Lynchburg, the more connected I feel to this place, and the richer my life becomes. So join me in exploring the Lynchburg neighborhood. Today is June 16th, 2020, and it is great to be alive and living in Lynchburg, Virginia. Up here at Mimosa Hill, it's been a cool, rainy day in a series of cool, rainy days. But I'm feeling good, because this morning, I was able to do my first live interview for the podcast since the pandemic started. And that just feels good, to sit with somebody for three hours and have a conversation, really dig into a subject. And I don't know about you, but these last few months, I, I've been handling my professional work. But passion projects, creative projects, I just feel like I haven't had anything to give to them. I don't know if it's the constant noise of the news and all this uncertainty, but I just haven't been able to get much done. And I don't say that so you can feel sympathy for me. I say it because maybe that's been your experience too. And if it is, I just want to let you know that you're not alone. That we're all just doing the best we can. But that's why this morning felt so good. And what made it even better, it was a conversation that my guest and I have been trying to sit down and have for over a year now. My guest today is Professor John Abel from Randolph College. All right. Well, my name is John Abel, and I hold the Carl Stern Chair of Economics at Randolph College here in Lynchburg, Virginia. All right. So microeconomics, macro, do you teach any specialized classes or anything? Uh, you have to be a generalist at Randolph. Um, there's only a handful of us, so I teach uh, mostly macro, but I also teach an applied micro course in environmental economics. I teach money banking. Uh, let's see. I'm going to even be teaching a course, in, and this is an interesting observation I'm making here, uh, affordable housing this coming fall, which... Uh, for your listeners uh, who know nothing about this, this is a course you would have taught, but for reasons that are sort of complicated and unnecessary to get into, I'm going to be teaching that. And I learned an enormous amount, which I hope to share a little bit this morning, preliminary uh, findings. Yeah. The, this pandemic has us all uh, <laughs> making big adjustments. It most certainly does. Um, so tell me, are you, you're not from Lynchburg originally, are you? No, originally from Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky. Western Kentucky, a little town called Paducah. Okay. Among the many towns made the news uh, in an unfortunate way, uh, a good 10 years back, uh, school shooting, unfortunately. How did you get to Lynchburg? Why Lynchburg? Why Randolph? Well, um, I've been teaching a long time now. I'm in something like my 35th year or so of teaching, and um, I'd been in um, a public... Uh, academic institution at uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And it just, it was a big school. They were sort of moving in this sort of big um, auditorium size uh, classroom kind of a deal. And my undergraduate experience at Center College in Kentucky had been, uh, you know, liberal arts. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking around to see if there might be a liberal arts, you know, school available uh, back, I guess, in 1990, 1991. 
and Randolph was on the market, and I interviewed nice people, uh, felt like a good fit, and I've been here ever since. Mm. So uh, that was early in my career. That was only like five or six years in, and so now I'm in my, what, what is it going to be this fall, maybe my 27th year or something like that? Uh, at Randolph? At Randolph. Okay. So most of your teaching career has been here. So mm-hmm. you've been here in Lynchburg for 27 years. I believe so, yeah. Okay. Now, I, I'm sure, like any job, you've got headaches and uh, parts of the job that are, are not as fun. Um, but what uh, what do you most enjoy about teaching? What's the best part? Well, the best part about academics is is the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, far, far and away, that's the best part. That That's kind of what fires me up um you know most most uh days most semesters you know you're gearing up for the fall semester spring semester you know you're getting ready for the classroom uh i enjoy research um all this research i'm sure we'll talk about uh, redlining and hunger poverty all those kinds of things that's that's nearly uh, equally enjoyable all the you know, committee stuff, that's far less enjoyable. I imagine any of my colleagues would agree with me on that. <laughs> so that's a good segue. Um, I think you first came on my radar when all your research about food deserts and hunger poverty came out and was in the local papers. I think there was editorial. Right. So it seems to me in, in academia, you can... You get to a certain point and you're a professor, you can study anything you want in your field. You can pick anything. You can pick, uh, you know, the price of a certain crop and just this widget and why is it this certain way. But you've gravitated towards two subjects, which are food deserts and redlining and housing inequality. Why those subjects? With the millions of subjects you could have done, why those? Well, my whole career has sort of been an evolution and... you know, research topics. Uh, so early on, I was at uh, UNC Charlotte, and the focus there was much more on research. And your earlier question about, you know, why, why Lynchburg, why Randolph, they, they had this expectation there that you, um, you know, you had to crank out all this research. They didn't really pay you for it. Uh, they, they were sort of underfunded. Um, but there was this expectation that you cranked out all this research. And I noticed that like when summers would roll around, there would be these little grants um, to help fund summer research. They would only fund uh, research that you'd already really begun, that, that was already sort of in the pipeline, and it didn't really offer any room for exploration. So if I showed up there with an area of expertise in, say, uh, macroeconometric time series research, that's kind of what I was expected to do. And so, you know, along the way, I was developing interest, but yet my research focus was supposed to be kind of narrowly defined. Well, that was among the things that I didn't really find that exciting about that uh, earlier position. So when I got to Randolph, it's like like you said, I I could do anything that I wanted. So my research kind of quickly spiraled away from just this narrow macroeconomic, macroeconometric time series stuff. And I took some of those, that skill, that uh, time series, uh, econometric skills, and started moving in the direction of um, kind of like white-black issues, uh, you know, who benefits from government spending and, and starting to look at issues of uh, inequality, that kind of stuff. And then once I started becoming a little bit more politically uh, sort of aware, active to an extent, 
you know, I realized that we had a lot of um, really untoward stuff going on in Central America. And for whatever reason, I sort of latched onto that. And there's a connection here to Lynchburg and uh, redlining and all. And, you know, it was an era of Ronald Reagan and uh, Contra Wars and all that. And I wanted to see some of that for myself. So I traveled first to Nicaragua, uh, been to Cuba, uh, been to El Salvador, Honduras, uh, and a lot to Guatemala. And in all those places, I would observe just grinding poverty, inequality, housing problems, and all the stuff that eventually I'm looking at here in Lynchburg. Mm. Uh, and for a while there, that, that absorbed most of my academic you know, bandwidth, if you will. I would go down to some of those places a couple times a year and come back and write about it. And eventually, I didn't exactly burn myself out, but once I moved to Lynchburg and started looking around, and I can even tell you uh, exactly how I kind of transitioned. Uh, but as I said, I looked around, I realized we've got a lot of the same problems here. So I had an honor student, economics honor student, uh, by the name of Denise Sewell, African-American student, who this is a number of years back now, maybe 2008, so we're looking at 12 years ago. Uh, she introduced me to the concept of food deserts. And I think she probably um, wrote some papers along the way on the subject. Uh, she wrote her senior paper, her honors paper, uh, studying Lynchburg. And so that was really my first look at Lynchburg in terms of such problems. She, she did all this hands-on, uh, you know, focus groups and, and surveys and all this, you know, really wonderful research. And, you know, one of the things that came out of her research was that uh, people, like in the College Hill area, their number one thing was they, they wanted a grocery store. They, they felt underserved. And she sort of forced me out of uh, our so-called red brick walls and we got in the car and drove all around downtown Lynchburg. And, you know, I, it's like, here I am really seeing my own town for the first time in a number of years after all those years of travel to Guatemala primarily and a few other countries. Here I am seeing Lynchburg. And so to, to jump from that story way ahead in, in time, you know, so today when I, I get a chance, I take people on my own, what I call poverty tours. I I take people to see parts of Lynchburg that most people would never see. So even our, our candidates for the job, you want to come here and, and teach, work in the econ and business department? Well, here, let's, let's, let's see what you think about the rest of the city before you get hired on. So I'll take people throughout White Rock and College Hill and Daniels Hill and see all kinds of places. But I, I, I kind of learned that approach from uh, Denise. So from that, and again, one of the points I'm making here is that students have been very uh, influential on me. It's not always just a one-way thing from teachers to students. Mm -hmm. So the next batch of students that was influential was a group of students, oh gosh, maybe, I don't know, eight, nine some odd years ago, uh, who were into food also. And uh, they kind of got me to work with them in the uh, student-led, student-run organic garden. And they kept kind of pushing me to teach a food course. So I taught a course on uh, the economics of food and sustainability. So here I am teaching a course pretty much that these students had requested. And I'm realizing that any one of them were smart. This was a really extraordinary group of three students, uh, Ludo, Carl, and Louise, Carl Sakis, Louise Searle, and uh, Ludo uh, Lemaitre. Any one of them could probably have taught the course. So here I am teaching these three really extraordinary students. So I thought, man, I've got to man up and really make this a worthwhile <laughs> course. So we, we got out of the red brick walls, and I came up with this project that really is sort of the, the, we'll say, the genesis of a lot of this research that you and I will talk about. 
I thought, let's let's see if, in fact, all this stuff that I learned from that earlier student, Denise uh, Sewell, if, if, in fact, Lynchburg itself is a food desert. It feels like one. You drive all throughout the downtown area, and you don't see a single grocery store. And, of course, the stuff that we take for granted today in Lynchburg, all the various, you know, little uh, chic uh, restaurants, you know, Water Dog and... Uh, small batch and all that kind of stuff. None of that was there, you know, a number of years ago, and certainly no restaurants. So I thought, well, let's, let's get the students out. We'll do a hands-on project. And so we'll go into um, the nearest uh, convenience stores, and we'll go to whatever the nearest grocery stores might be. So if you're living downtown, there is no real nearby grocery store. There's lots of those little convenience stores, like one up on Fifth Street and there's the White Rock uh, convenience store, those kinds of places. Yeah, you're going to Grace, you're going to Gra- Lucky, Grace. you're going to Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. that's exactly where we went. Uh, also, all the way up to Miles Market on yeah. Rivermont. That's right. Uh, the nearest grocery stores for anybody living in that downtown area would have been up Memorial. So uh, the nearest one would have been um, Super Dollar Discount in the plaza, no longer there. Uh, the next one would have been, I believe it's L and N, L and N. Uh, further up uh, Memorial, and then finally the um, Food Lion, a little bit further up the road on on Memorial. So uh, those were the three grocery stores that we compared to five different convenience stores, and we we looked at um, pricing and we looked at availability. And in some of those uh, convenience stores, Grace, you mentioned, uh, down there at at the corner of, uh, I guess, Grace and uh, 12th, there were no uh, vegetables, no, nothing fresh, n- not a lick of fresh food. And I asked the manager, how come? No, Why no fresh food? He said, well, there's no call for it. There's, there's no demand for it. And I, you know, we got to, as a class, talking about whether, you know, kind of the, the chicken and egg here, uh, kind of strange pun there. Why is there no, no demand? So the upshot of all that analysis is that um, we found that food... And those convenience stores was about 90% more expensive, mm-hmm. 90%, nearly two times more expensive than in the grocery stores. The selection consisted mainly of processed foods, sodas, and beer and wine. So, you know, you, you walk into those places and you got cans of Pringles stacked to the ceiling and, you know, cold cases, you know, full of Budweiser this and Bud like that, and, but no, no fresh food. So... Uh, what was pretty cool about that, uh, again, was this sort of you know, student-faculty uh, joint experience. In, in, in the course of a three-and-a-half-month semester, that, that's as long as our semesters last, in three-and-a-half months, we compiled all that data, did all the research, compiled all the data, wrote it up. Each of us took a section. You know, somebody did history, somebody uh, did, I don't know, prices, somebody did selection. But uh, each one of us wrote up a section of the paper. There were six students and me, seven total. We presented our findings at two different uh, academic venues, one on campus, one at the uh, Federal Reserve in Richmond. This was the uh, Virginia Association of Economics annual conference. So here are students presenting formal academic work at these conferences. And before the semester closed out, we submitted a uh, polished final version of this thing to the Virginia Association of Economics. Uh, They accepted it for publication, and um, that kind of started the ball rolling and you know, people wanted to talk about this you know you know Abel will you come and uh, you know give a presentation at our church or, or this or that and you know then that led to other research on hunger and poverty and okay so your students got you onto this 
research trail, which ended up being something meaty, something you guys could really work on, which I kind of think is the goal in academia. Sometimes you go down and there's nothing there. There's no there there. There's just nothing to work on or it won't resonate. And you guys found something to work on and then you were able to get it published, which is a big deal in your field. And then you were able to actually see it resonate larger than just in those red brick walls, as you say. I kind of think that feels like a big win, like in your field. But my question would be, I know that you kind of got pulled in to some of those conversations about how do we get a grocery store? How do we bring a grocery store to some of these food deserts? Bring another option. And, you know, there's the, the diagnostic part, sort of seeing the problem, identifying it, maybe laying it out and calling it out. And then there's that other side where it's trying to solve it. What was, the, what was your experience like being on that? I know you were in some of those conversations, some of those meetings. What was that like? Well, um, as more and more people started wanting to uh, you know, talk about this subject, you know, a lot of us realized that there are a lot of us all with interest in the same subject matter. Uh, quite some while back, I believe it may have been 2013, um, you know, I'd already given a few talks around town about food deserts, and um, it suddenly dawned on a number of us that were several of, of us, several of us are all working on the same basic subject matter. Leslie Hoagland, who is now uh, off uh, elsewhere, um, she was a, a health educator uh, at the uh, Lynchburg Health Department. Uh, Janelle Smith is a, a food educator uh, with Virginia Tech. A lot of us came together. I don't know exactly how we learned of each other, but we did. And out of that came sort of one of these first attempts at, at a group effort to solve some of these problems. We put together the Lynchburg uh, Area Food Council. And that was a fairly unwieldy group of something like 20, 20 board members. That's a lot of board members to try to uh, all pull in the same direction. But they're still going. Um, and so that, that was an early effort. You know, it's very easy for me as an academic to sort of stay on the diagnostic side of things and, and say, mm -hmm. we, we've got some real problems here. You know, I, I am not a marketing expert. I, I don't know how to do a marketing survey and say, oh, well, if you would just put a, a grocery store here, it would be a success. Or, oh, don't put it there because it'll be a failure, that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I didn't realize there's lots of folks who really are passionate about all this. They, you know, lots of folks who want a grocery store. Um, some have simply felt that downtown Lynchburg desperately needed a grocery store. You know, some wanted it to be uh, slightly more upscale, but still appealing to everybody broadly. Then a whole other group uh, realizing that, uh, you know, we're, we're not serving the poor at all in the downtown area. you got this big food desert. And so you had a couple of groups there for a while, uh, both of whom, as it turns out, uh, have kind of given up. There was the grassroots uh, folks who actually got a store open. It, it was only open for about six months. And they, they learned, unfortunately, pretty quickly that um, when you don't have the buying power of a Walmart and you've got to price things such that if you actually sold those items at that price, you could keep your doors open. But if you're not, if you're not selling it because there's no demand for $11 ice cream, then eventually it all doesn't uh, add up. The math doesn't work out. They close their doors. You had the Oasis group, which was desperately looking for a way to uh, get some door open somewhere to start selling food to the underserved, uh, to those that originally... Um, you know, I, start, I was talking about in uh, that Food Desert uh, mm -hmm. article, that research with my students. 
So the Oasis group, after meeting, after meeting, after meeting, uh, most, most of those meetings were taking place at the uh, Amazing Grace Church over on uh, Grace Street. Very well attended meetings at first. Then as it took forever to you know, get studies done by some outside experts, we, we brought in uh, who is now a local expert, Bill Sanford, who actually helped slow us down and realize this guy was uh, an expert in uh, retail grocery who had uh, done a lot of this in uh, New York City. Um, he got us to realize that what we were really proposing to do probably was not going to be a success and that we would have to keep throwing money on top of money on top of money uh, if we wanted to open up such a grocery store in downtown. We had two locations, one on 5th Street, one on 12th Street. And after a lot of uh, worry and a bit of gnashing of teeth and... Uh, uh, just, just a whole lot of worry about it, we finally concluded that um, this was not going to uh, make it either. Yeah. So right now, uh, the upshot of all this is uh, Lynchburg still has this downtown food desert. Did you find in your research that people were finding a way to get fresh produce even though it wasn't convenient? Like, it seems to me that in different markets, in the absence of a formal network, informal networks crop up. And... I've done a few interviews with people who grew up in the urban core and in historically black neighborhoods. And they'll tell you that in the 50s and 60s, everybody had a garden. Everybody had a vegetable garden. And there's this, you get this picture of this informal network springing up. Okay, there's not a grocery store that's convenient to us or for us. We're going to grow our, you know, that doesn't do meat. That doesn't solve every problem. But it was interesting to me that there could be, did you find any way that they're doing that? That people in that area that's a food desert are finding some creative, resourceful way to fill that need. Well, there, there's kind of like, there's two tracks at work here. Um, there are those who being, let's say, no more than one generation removed from maybe some of those creative solutions that you're talking about, yeah. or maybe two generations removed from everybody eating basically fresh food off of uh, some you know local or regional farm. It really doesn't take much passage of time to lose a complete way of life mm-hmm. to whatever uh, the capitalist retailers are selling us. If, if they're selling us processed stuff like Pringles, and that's all that's in the store that's within walking distance, if you don't have a car, you're going to end up eating a lot of processed food. Yeah. So there's a lot of people in this food desert catchment area that we're talking about who no longer eat probably the the healthiest diet. Mm -hmm. Those that are still trying to eat that healthy diet, there there has been a push uh, in the direction of community gardens uh, as kind of a, we'll call it a stopgap measure. I've I've played some bit of a role in in that, volunteering, helping to design a couple of gardens myself. It's not the easiest sell. You you would think, oh man, a community garden uh, in this neighborhood? Let's everybody pitch in. But it's actually hard to find a lot of local help to, you know, there's local help at the outset. You know, you get some ribbon cutting or whatever. (laughs) But to to keep, you know, a garden maintained and going year after year after year and do all the work that you need to do to maintain a garden, it's it's real work. And I know for a a number of years, I would uh, volunteer over at another garden, uh, the the big one over there near... uh, uh, Tenbridge Hill that uh, Aubrey Barber uh, kind of single-handedly uh, runs. Um, that's like a nearly an acre, and mm-hmm. now that property is owned by Centra, uh, and it's not clear how that's going to all play out. There was a bit of a, 
an uproar of the fact that they bought it and was proposing to turn the whole thing into a parking lot. That issue aside, still is a garden, still is kind of operated mostly by Mr. Barber. He claims that it's become more difficult over the years to get the uh, school kids from the Yoder Center to come over there and work with him. It was much easier in the past for a handful of reasons. Maybe those are liability reasons. I can't mm. say exactly. But there's not this outpouring of support from Tenbridge Hill. It's not like he's got, you know, a sign-up sheet of 50 neighbors that he has to, you know, choose 20 because, you know, 50 would be overwhelming on that Saturday workday. He's kind of on his own. He's the the biggest-hearted guy in town that I know. He gives away tons of food, but he's definitely not overrun with uh, local volunteers. So Hmm. the community garden solution only goes so far. So uh, one of the projects that I've done over the years um, that kind of gets at this issue of community gardens that we've been talking about project I feel pretty good about was back in a sabbatical spring semester 2014 in which I interviewed 14 people in 14 weeks associated with various aspects of Lynchburg's food scene from the community market manager, uh, farmers, vendors, uh, people at uh, Lynchburg Grows. And then I I spoke with uh, John Williams, a, uh, we'll call him just a involved, uh, active uh, community resident of Daniels Hill. And he gave a pretty sober assessment of life in Daniels Hill. And he was talking about the garden there, the community garden, which I had had a hand in uh, designing and raising money for and and helping to get it up and going, along with other community residents. And he said that, um, you know, in in the world of uh, poverty, and he didn't use the word discrimination, but, uh, you know, he said in in a world of, uh, you know, difficult circumstances, and he was talking about a lot of people he had grown up with or no longer there in Daniels Hill, mm-hmm. low incomes, the fact that, uh, you know, if you want to shop for good quality food, you've really got to organize your life efficiently because you, you can't just make this quick little trip, you know, up to the grocery store. You've got to, you've got to plan it, you know. If, if you're coming from somewhere else where you've uh, been working, you know, you've got to stop along the way and stock up. Uh, in other words, it's easier for those residents of Daniels Hill to just go up there to Miles Market. And what do you find when you go to Miles Market? You find processed stuff like mm-hmm. we were talking about before. You don't find a lot of fresh foods. And he, he spoke about that community garden. He says, it's nice, but wh- where do you eat? during the winter when that garden is lying fallow. Uh, So a community garden can only take us so far. And that was kind of an eye-opener to all of us idealists who think, oh, community garden is the solution for everything. Well, it could continue to put food on the table during the winter, but boy, it would be hard to do so. You would need to get into the whole extra business, you know, hoop houses and all that. And just there's not enough, you know, volunteer help, I don't think, to take these local community gardens to that next level where you're cranking out food to feed the whole neighborhood, you know, all year round. So those gardens only go so far. Yeah. Okay. So you shift from Central America to food deserts right here in our hometown. How did that research help spring you forward to what you're doing today? Well, once you realize that, um, you know, there are people missing meals, uh, there is a problem of hunger, and you start, you don't have to do a whole lot of research to realize that it's not always a simple lack of a grocery store. Uh, a lot of folks would suggest the whole food desert uh, concept is hyped up a little bit too much. Uh, 
people have tried to, you know, take kind of re-control of, of the language there. And they say, well, it's not a food desert. It's a food swamp. And, and it, it goes down all these little rabbit holes. But ultimately, the problem boils down to poverty. Okay, mm-hmm. If people are hungry, it's because they're poor. If you weren't poor, then not having a grocery store wouldn't be that big a deal. You just get in your car and you go. But if you don't have enough money to have a car, then you've got a problem on your hands. So it pretty quickly became apparent to me that poverty was a real problem. And so my research shifted in that direction. And, you know, I, I, again, I continued to give talks on this. You know, every, every year I've got a new uh, kind of a, a spiel, if you will, uh, simply because the data changes every year. If this was just nothing but history, and I told the story of uh, redlining or something, you know, well, you, you tell that and you're sort of done with it. But Lynchburg's poverty and hunger and, and income numbers, they change. Every single December when you get a new round of uh, U.S. Census numbers, the, the story evolves. Mm. So, you know, from time to time, city council wants to talk about this, and this church and that church and this civic group. They all want to hear, you know, what kind of progress Lynchburg has made. You know, every time I give a talk on all this, I keep, you know, sort of thinking about the solution side of all this and, and thinking, you know, where is the poverty coming from? Po- poverty is, you know, this causal factor, but what's causing the poverty? You know, poverty doesn't just sort of happen automatically. Mm-hmm. So what's what's the cause of that? So, you know, being a fan of history, um, I was certainly aware of, uh, you know, a lot of the problems of, of race, and uh, I knew about the topic of redlining. You know, I, I read the, the work of uh nehisi Coates, and uh, later I read the work of, um, you know, Richard Rothstein. And I suspected all that information, uh, you know, applied to uh, Lynchburg, but I, I never had seen these maps. I kept hearing about redlining, mm-hmm. right? But I didn't know a whole lot about it. I hadn't even thought about the fact that there was yellow lining and blue lining and green lining. There, there were all these different color shaded maps. And once I studied the maps a little bit more, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we had such a map for Lynchburg? Well, lo and behold, there is a map for Lynchburg. The Homeowner Loan Corporation uh, put such maps together for cities all across the country. And the uh, Mapping Inequality uh, Project out of the University of Richmond initiated this project which took all these original maps, they put them online along with the basic information, these uh, surveys uh, that went into the creation of the maps, all those original area designation surveys, uh, they're online. So all this raw data is sitting out there for the city of Lynchburg or Philadelphia or Baltimore or whatever. It's all there. Anybody can go there and look at it. And I realized that uh, this, this is maybe not going to explain everything that we need to know about uh, why there's poverty in Lynchburg, but this historical antecedent certainly plays a role. Mm-hmm. And once I looked at these maps, and I looked especially at these explanations for why these certain parts of town got color-coded red or yellow or whatever, uh, these these area designation survey forms tell a whole story there that's just rather uh, remarkable. I think that's something that's really useful is we hear about things on a national level. You know, redlining existed. We hear about the civil rights. We hear about different things in history, but it's always helpful for someone to say, okay, 
We know about it on a big scale. That's an issue that we've heard of. But what about if we look at it right here in our town? It's not some other city. It's Our city is included. And it seems like that's what your paper does. It sort of lays out what happened here and the effect it's having today. So you've got this paper called Redlining in Lynchburg, published in the Virginia Social Science Journal. I think it was last fall. And I've read a lot of papers in my work. I have to read stuff. And a lot of times it's really dry. I mean, honestly, it's boring. Like a lot of papers are boring. But yours isn't. And I'm not just flattering you. Like you start out with a very um, interesting section called the historical setting. Like you really set the scene. It is a narrative paper. It's not something to fall asleep to. And I was wondering if you could do that for us. You do a really good job of setting up the historical setting in the late 20s and 30s. To me, it made the paper just drew me in. Could you set the stage here? I will attempt to do so. Thank, thank you for your kind remarks. Um, you know, you get me started on a question like that, and you realize that uh, I have a propensity to go even further back than, than that. <laughs> Please do. Uh, not quite like a Michener novel where you go back to the dawn of time. But uh, <laughs> when you think about the, the timing of this paper, it was rather um, interesting that, you know, the work, the research, most of it took place in... Uh, 2019, which was the 400th anniversary of the first setting on the soil of this continent of black slaves from Africa. So they showed up uh, here in the state of Virginia on the shore uh, in a British privateer called the White Lion. Uh, I believe it was 20 uh, black slaves in, in the year 1619. And as they say, the rest is history. So you've got this connection from then, 401 years now, back in time. And when you look at, um, say, some of these modern-day protests and demonstrations, and you look at some of the graffiti scrawled on the uh, Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, and you mm -hmm. see the number 1619, that's where it's coming from. It's yeah. coming from that first date of the arrival of black slaves. Well, what does that have to do with Lynchburg? Well, Lynchburg has been around a long time. It was uh, founded in the late 1700s, and uh, at its founding, there were slaves. The earliest Quaker records show that uh, we had slaves here, and uh, subsequent records show that 40% of the population owned slaves. I think it may have been, I think it was exactly 40%. And you, you put a number like 40% in terms of actual numbers, there's something like three, 4,000 actual families had slaves, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of people who owned another human being here in this town. 42%, I believe I've got the percentages right, I could have, have, could have them reversed, 42% of Lynchburg's overall population were slaves, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we're talking about a sizable percent of people back in the 1700s 1800s who were enslaved human beings, uh, they were not necessarily in such dire straits as field hands in Alabama picking cotton. It wasn't quite that bad, but they were doing uh, tobacco factory work. Uh, they were hired out uh, in various capacities uh, on an individual basis. But nevertheless, they were subject to the horrors of this peculiar institution. So uh, Lynchburg, uh, you know, much of its wealth, it was considered to be uh, one of the wealthiest, on a per capita basis, uh, cities in the entire country. And much of that wealth was uh, attributable to either the slave trade itself. Lynchburg was an entrepot site, which is a, a fancy way of saying this was a site where slaves were actually traded. People, people 
black Americans got traded here on the trading block at 9th and Main for movement further south and westward into some of the cotton, uh, you know, growing areas. You know, cotton is this uh, voracious uh, plant, which you keep moving west looking for ever more fertile ground. Well, hence we get, you know, Alabama and Mississippi and uh, Louisiana. So all these cotton growing states and it all works with slaves. So Lynchburg is a slave trading city. So slaves are being traded here. Slaves are being worked here. They're owned here. It's part of the wealth creation mechanism of the city. So there's that part of, of the background. So you, you move ahead to the 1930s when we begin to speak of redlining. And this is really one of the ugliest periods in U.S. history, and, and it was not particularly nice for Lynchburg either. We're, we're looking at one of the most racist uh, periods. Um, I, I guess from a black perspective, it's just been racist the whole way through. You had official slave racism. Then you move from uh, the end of the Civil War to, uh, you know, black codes. I mean, the South wasn't about to really give up on slavery. Yeah, they lost the Civil War, but they didn't want to give up their cheap labor, mm -hmm. so they didn't. They, they had black codes. You had vagrancy laws. If you were seen on the streets and you didn't have a work contract, you get thrown in prison. And because of the clever wording of the 13th Amendment, if you were accused of, a, uh, of any kind of a, you know, a misdemeanor uh, crime of, of whatever sort, then uh, you, you could be put in prison, and, and if you're in prison now, you're free labor, right? Yeah. So it was a pretty ugly system. Um, so, you know, this whole separate but equal Jim Crow era of, of the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, in Lynchburg meant, you know, you're sitting on the back of the trolley, didn't have buses yet, but you're you know, on the back of the trolley. Uh, you certainly are not allowed to go to that... Uh, pool, the public pool over here at Riverside Park. Um, the only library in town is a private library. Blacks are not allowed there. Blacks are not allowed to sit at um, Patterson's Drugs or uh, the Texas uh, Tavern. Uh, you might be able to go uh, for the person, you know, the family you work for, perhaps, to the side door and get a carryout or something. But blacks are clearly second-class citizens in this town. Kind of jumping back to the national scale, just to show you how racist things were in the 1930s, the House of Representatives in 1930 had passed an anti-lynching bill. It could not be taken up for a Senate vote uh, because of the uh, protestations of some of the more racist senators, uh, Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, uh, to name one. The whole, whole effort was finally um, given up in, in 1938. So, so to go on record, you know, voting against a piece of legislation that would say it's illegal to have an extrajudicial killing of another human being, to go on record and say, no, I don't, want, I don't think we ought to get rid of the right to do that. Mm. Just, it's mind-boggling. So it's in that violent, racist setting, coupled with the Great Depression, which was just this horrible economic cataclysm, which just sort of ground down human beings, uh, and blacks got ground down as much as anybody, during the Great Depression, uh, you know, we hear of, you know, uh, unemployment rates of as much as 25%. That was mostly for whites. For blacks, it was double that. Uh, numbers suggest that um, 
for blacks, it may have been 50%. In other words, mm-hmm. one out of every two blacks uh, who wanted to work were, were out of work. So mm-hmm. it was a very, very difficult time. And so it's in that kind of historical context that we get the government coming to the rescue with the uh, Homeowner Loan Corporation to try to rescue people who are losing their homes that we start into all this redlining. And in the paper, you do something very useful, which is you lay out how home financing and sales worked then as compared to now. Because if you are alive now and you've bought a home, you think it's, you go to a mortgage broker, you get a few bids, it's four or 5%, it's 30 years. Honestly, a, 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 a pretty well-oiled process. But you lay out in the paper that that's not how it worked then. That is a, to someone 100 years ago, that would be a, they wouldn't recognize the system. So can you just explain how financing worked then? It was a completely different uh, home market. Home ownership was really for the well-to-do, and that meant mostly uh, white well-to-do. There were black homeowners, but not many. Um, homeownership required uh, putting a lot of money down, mm-hmm. as much as, say, half of the value of the property, and then you would take out these short-term loans as uh, short as five years, maybe seven years, and then at the end of five or seven years, you would be obligated to come up with the other half of you know the loan, loan mm-hmm. value. So you'd have this balloon payment that would be due, and so mm-hmm. unless you had the wherewithal to simply pay it off inside of five or seven years, a lot of people would simply take out another loan, so you get loans on top of loans. But that, that just made homeownership out of the reach for the, the masses, this sort of mass, uh, you know, 63, whatever the homeowner uh, percent rate is these days. Uh, you know, we didn't have anything like that back then. What was it then? Well, let's see, for, for blacks, let me see if I can remember the exact number. It was something like, I think, a 25% uh, rate for blacks. For whites, I believe it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. When you look at Lynchburg, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, the Homeowner Loan Corporation security maps here in a yeah. minute. The uh, the green and blue uh, shaded uh, neighborhoods, it was nearly 100% homeownership uh, for many of those neighborhoods. It's like yeah. you either owned it or, or you didn't. And so for, for blacks, uh, it was a very low homeownership rate uh, in, in those red line neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, homeownership ranged from 20 to 40 percent. We'll say 30 percent as an average. Lynchburg mm-hmm. was actually about 5 percent above the national average. Uh, for for whites, it was mostly um, it was uh, close to 100 percent, 100 percent in the green shaded areas, 90 uh, percent in the in the blue shaded areas. So into that environment, what does the federal government do? What happens next? All right. Well, so it's the environment, just in the way of a reminder, is one of, as I put it earlier, economic cataclysm. Right. Uh, when you've got so many people being thrown out of work, you've got people who are you know, no longer in a position to make their rather onerous uh, you know, housing payments, and it's difficult to make rental payments. You've, you've got foreclosures just right and left, a thousand a day at one point, I think, at the... Uh, uh, trough, if you will, of, or peak, however you want to think of it, of the Great Depression in 1933. Wow. Uh, just enormous numbers of uh, people you know, losing their homes. So to the rescue comes the federal government uh, with the Homeowner Loan Corporation. And then shortly uh, on the heels of that comes the Federal Housing Administration. 
So the, the Homeowner Loan Corporation, Hulk as we will refer to it, is designed to rescue those who actually own their homes, okay, mm-hmm. or who are making payments on their homes. The FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, is designed to step in and actually create from scratch a middle class. That, that kind of what's missing in all of this is the middle class. Uh, not many people, as we've already talked about, are able to own their own homes. So the FHA comes along with the idea of doing basically what Hulk did, but doing it to create a middle class. So, so what Hulk actually did now was to buy up a lot of those original loans, those uh, awkward you know, 50% down, pay off in five years uh, with a bubble payment, buy up those loans and then reissue brand new loans with a longer repayment period of up to 25 or even 30 years, fully amortizing that begin to look like what we take for granted today. Yeah. You know, for many, many years, uh, you know, the, the norm in the industry was, you know, you'd put down, you know, 20% and things got more creative over time. Now you can put down even less than that. So, that's what Hulk did. So they, they were buying out loans that people simply could not handle at the time. The FHA comes along and creates a brand new program of these fully amortizing 25, 30-year loans uh, you know, with a minimal down payment. And that allowed people to be able to consider buying homes for the first time ever. So that was this wonderful shot in the arm to the economy. It it certainly helped the construction industry, which had fallen along with uh, everything else. But where this gets into some interesting and and thorny territory is that with the government putting so much money, you know, taxpayer money at stake to, to rescue the economy, it wanted to make sure of the stability of the neighborhoods into which it was going to be making this substantial multi-billion dollar investment. So it sends in teams of appraisers, and oftentimes it simply draws upon those that it um, uh, knows in the community because it didn't really have its own, you know, I say it, Hulk and FHA didn't have their own teams of appraisers, so they would call upon uh, local realtors, those that knew the local market. And again, we're, we're now talking about the 30s. We're talking about this racist era. And the National Association of Realtors had adopted this code of ethics, which basically said uh, that realtors will not insert you know, people into a neighborhood that, that don't fit, essentially. In other words, whites only, for the most part. So you take these local realtors who have bought into this code of ethics, ethics that have signed on to it, you hand them these sheets of paper, these area designation survey forms that ask questions like, you know, who's in this this neighborhood? Are there foreigners? Are there blacks? Not blacks, are there Negroes, right? They're asking, are there Negroes? And not just are they there, but what's the percent, right? They're interested in other things. They're interested in income and the terrain and the quality of the housing stock and all that. But it's it's pretty clear what they're really interested in. They're, they're interested in whether there are blacks and foreigners, and mm-hmm. they're interested in, are there people on relief? Well, of course there's people on relief in many of these poor neighborhoods. It's the Great Depression. Right. Every single neighborhood that uh, ended up getting, you know, uh, yellow or red shaded um, had people on relief. It's just kind of as a natural thing at that time. But so that's the kind of data that they were collecting. So they surveyed every neighborhood in town. And uh, after collecting all this data, they would then give a rating to each of these neighborhoods. So if there were a a significant enough presence of blacks, and many of these neighborhoods were 100% black, that was a guarantee that it was going to get red shading, was going to be referred to as hazardous. That was the language they used. At some point, 
once you move toward almost all white, but maybe there was a little bit, bit of black still, maybe 5%, 10%, for sure that proximity to blacks would, would be guaranteed that you're going to have yellow shading. It would be a neighborhood to be considered in decline. So a lot of neighborhoods got uh, yellow shading. And then the better neighborhoods, according to Hulk, uh, were, of course, white-only neighborhoods uh, with more expensive homes, people with, with higher incomes. And the, the money of, of the day, we're talking about homes with a value of maybe five to 7000 and uh, incomes of something similar to that, annual incomes of maybe 5000 those kinds of numbers. So with, with numbers like that, those neighborhoods would uh, get green shading. But then you've you got to realize that in, in a community, everybody is next to somebody else, right? Yeah. You're not usually talking about suburbs that are so distant that they're all by themselves with, with uh, you know, barriers. or so, you know, We're not talking about apartheid South Africa. So even if you go out Boonesboro, uh, Boonesboro eventually butts up against something else. So the downtown-oriented part of Boonesboro is sitting right next to areas that are poor and where there are Negroes, right? Mm. And... So that's that's why uh, you know like where I you know teach at Randolph, that that part of the Boonesboro area uh, along Rivermont that got uh, blue shading instead of green shading. Why? Because just you know you, you cross the railroad tracks down there, you cross Hollins Mill or whatever, and now you're in you know Bedford Avenue and places like that. Um, there were uh, black folks there, and that got yellow and, and red shading. So uh, you have this whole sort of spectrum of uh, color shading. So the red and the yellow shaded neighborhoods then were deemed to be less worthy of loans than were the blue and the green. So in the case of red, they, the, the, the possibilities, the future possibilities of loans on, on these uh, area designation uh, survey sheets, it just said that uh, there would be no chance of loans. So these people may not have realized that when you've got people walking up and down and, and doing surveys, the reports that they were making were, were basically saying to you folks, you stand no chance of getting a loan. Or if it's a yellow-shaded uh, neighborhood, you have a limited chance of mm -hmm. getting a loan. And you got to realize kind of what's at work here. Nobody's going to get a loan necessarily from Hulk or from the FHA, but the Hulk and FHA are guaranteeing loans. Yeah. So you move forward in time a little bit and you think about something like... Um, Levittown, uh, first in New York and later in Pennsylvania, uh, Mr. Levitt could not have built properties like that if he had not had loan guarantees from the FHA. Yeah. And so he could not have found a bank who would have been willing to make a loan for that many properties if it had not had a guarantee from the FHA. Well, the FHA comes along and is going to, with that same sort of racial concern, uh, say to Mr. Levitt, you, you put a clause in your uh, contracts that say whites only. Yeah. So he, if he wanted to get that loan guarantee, he did. So the, these agencies, the Hulk, you know, Hulk and uh, the FHA, they, they had, there was all this racist baggage from the 1930s. So that's where the term redlining specifically comes from is, for the listener, it's, it's an actual, like, it's an actual red line. Well, it's it's more of red shading. If you red look shading. at these maps, okay. uh, somehow red shading doesn't sound as good as redlining. I don't. <laughs> I think redlining may have been an expression in the '60s. Okay. Uh, the original map uh, maps 
involves shading. Uh, yeah. It wasn't like you had a white map with a, a red boundary or border or something. Yeah. It was all red shading, yellow shading, blue shading, and green shading. So those yeah. shades uh, were the shades given to whole neighborhoods. But <laughs> but the you know the intent is the same, yeah. whatever language you use. And so by saying a neighborhood has the lowest, this red shaded neighborhood usually has the lowest income the lowest housing values. And by saying you're not going to give any loans to it, and not just an individual lender, but the weight of the federal government, yeah, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, it, right? It, it most uh, certainly does. What, what, so what happens? What, what, what plays out? Well, what plays out is that, well, first of all, the federal government goes on record as being uh, the, the maintainer of the existing racism that we've got, and, and it... And it magnifies it. It makes it worse. Uh, Roth, uh, Rothstein, uh, in his book, The Color of Law, makes the point that, yes, there were bad actors. There were banks. There were racists. All that would have happened. There, there would have been uh, racial steering you know, away from this neighborhood into that neighborhood. All that would have gone on. But it was all made vastly worse by the federal government. Had the federal government not taken the stands it did, then it just it took a problem and compounded it, and it compounded it down through the generations. You can yeah. think of it as like a shadow being cast forward through time. And mm. when you think about all the wealth that is tied up in people's homes, I mentioned Levittown earlier. If you'd bought into Levittown back in the day, I, I forget the original prices, maybe you know, in, in the single thousand-digit numbers, maybe let's say $7,000 or whatever, uh, Levittown today, I think those homes go for four, maybe even $500,000. Blacks actually could have afforded to buy into Levittown back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, blacks in general were earning enough money to be able to buy there. Most blacks today could not afford to do so. So people, blacks, have missed out on all that wealth building uh, that has gone on. You know, families that had bought into Levittown in the earliest days for few, a few thousand dollars, uh, maybe it's now passed down to through two or three or maybe even four generations. So now somebody has a property worth four, five hundred thousand dollars in New York, Pennsylvania, whatever. And with that, you know, you can get a you know a second loan against your house or or, or whatever the case may be to fund a business, to fund uh, you know somebody going to school. All those opportunities were lost for you know, black Americans. Mm. So how long was this the law of the land? How long was this policy in effect? Well, it was the law of the land, I suppose, through uh, until 1968 when you had the Fair Housing uh, Law passed, the Fair Housing Act. And you know, from then until now, we've been trying to sort of make up for really generations of lost time. And, and one of the points that Rothstein makes in his book is that, you know, this went on for so long and, and the racism was so entrenched and pernicious that, again, you, you, you've set in motion things like, again, come back to um, Le, you know, Levittown. It's, it's more of a metaphor than an actual place. It's a place, but it's a metaphor for the problems of the nation. Blacks today can't buy into the Levittowns of the world. It doesn't matter that we had the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which says, you know, blacks can live anywhere they want, right? Mm. You, you can't discriminate. But when you add all these other little pieces to the puzzle, 
you take the GI Bill, or you might say, well, surely, you know, blacks who served in World War II, they could come back and they had a, they had a leg up right through the GI Bill. Well, you come back from World War II and you found that, you know, maybe you had a racist uh, colonel who didn't feel like you deserve uh, any, you know, luck in life. And so you're going to get a um, dishonorable discharge. Or maybe you get an honorable discharge, but still the banks won't make a loan to you. So mm-hmm. blacks missed out on a lot of the uh, New Deal era legislation. They missed out on the GI Bill. A lot of the uh, good jobs during World War II. I mean, we were just we were building ships and boats and trucks and all this stuff, just right, you know, missiles and bullets, all these things. Blacks were left out of all those jobs until the tail end of the war when suddenly, you know, the war effort is just so uh, dire. Uh, the need for workers is so great. They mm. finally reluctantly started bringing in blacks to the employment uh, of producing uh, war material. But they brought them in so late that, you know, w- within a year's time, most of those jobs, as the war wound down, all those jobs were lost. And so, you know, you had racism on the employment front way back then. So, you know, until we have the Civil Rights Act of, what, 1964, then basically there was a blind eye turned toward any sort of hiring inequalities. So blacks, you know, not only did they have housing problems, they had employment problems, always stuck in this dual or segmented labor market, stuck with, you know, the crummiest jobs at the lowest pay and no legal recourse and so that's the environment in, in which, you know, you move past the 1960s. You know, you, you get, what, uh, riots in, in Watts in 1967. You move forward to the present. You, get, you got people upset over, uh, you know, the George Floyd killing, the mm-hmm. eight minutes and 46 uh, incident. Mm. You've got a lot of people who are still disenfranchised. Mm not able to live in decent neighborhoods, not able to attend quality schools. A lot of these problems are still with us, and we, we have not really begun to grapple with them very well. Has the, has the federal government ever done anything to right that wrong? The specific one of the redlining? Has there ever been any specific thing to address it? The, the main thing I guess we've had, we've had some affirmative action in some hiring and in some academic uh, institutions. Uh, That's been fought along the way. Uh, We've pretty much done away with most affirmative action. I I think if if Rothstein, who's who's done kind of the premier research on this, we're sitting here talking with you, he would say that there's not been enough, that we've allowed this problem to become so entrenched, to become so deeply ingrained that it's, it's really hard to know where to begin. So among the things that I think about that I'm going to have to talk about in this affordable housing class, mm-hmm. how do you possibly begin to make housing affordable, uh, say, in, in the Levittowns of this world, mm-hmm. when people have been left behind in the labor market, they've, they've accumulated uh, no wealth, you know, there's all kinds of studies. The Federal Reserve does studies. Others have done studies to suggest that 60 Six percent, two thirds of Americans uh, could not handle a thousand dollar emergency. So if you think about you and me, we, you know, your your middle class lifestyle, my middle class lifestyle. I'm I'm guessing that if your washer or dryer goes kaput, 
you're going to dig somewhere and find the means to get that thing fixed. You're not going to spend the rest of your life without a washer or dryer. Mm-hmm. Your your uh, freezer, your uh, refrigerator goes kaput. You're, you're going to get that thing fixed. 66% of Americans couldn't afford to do that uh, very easily. A lot of people can't handle a $400 emergency. Mm-hmm. So... Um, this is the kind of unequal world we live in, and it's going to require a lot of creativity. Um, it's going to require probably some more affirmative action of some sort. People like ta Coates call for uh, reparations. That, of course, is a highly contested concept. But um, we, ne- we need to do something. We need to uh, move away from the uh, restrictive uh, zoning we need to have more uh, ex, uh, inclusionary zoning instead of exclusionary zoning in our real estate. We need to find creative ways, and it might might well involve taxpayer money, mm-hmm. to provide subsidies so that uh, a builder can find it profitable to build uh, a set of you know, housing, whether it's rental or or for you know owner occupancy that. Cuts across all levels, you know, well-to-do as well as those who are uh, poor. Uh, we clearly have an affordable housing problem. Yeah. And it's going to require uh, some activism on the part of the government to mm-hmm. undo, you know, multi-centuries, actually. Yeah. 401 years of government activism on the part of whites only. It may now require some activism on the part of uh, the fact that black lives do matter. Yeah. Mm. So as our country continues to wrestle with this, right, we see it in real time today. It's still an active wrestling with our history, with our shared history as Americans. And people are still fighting to make it known that black lives matter. Your paper looks back at Lynchburg, and you do a flash forward from the 30s and 40s to 2019, and you... Give us an update on what those neighborhoods look like today. Um, can you kind of share the, the, the findings? What, 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 what was the impact on those neighborhoods, which were called green and yellow and blue and red? So um, I'll say this at the outset. It was very difficult to try to do a statistical analysis of the type I wanted to do, in part because all those neighborhoods that were analyzed back in the 1930s have not been tracked in any sort of a way from then until now. You could not take, say, C11 or whatever. You, mm-hmm. couldn't, you couldn't take uh, uh, neighborhood C11 and follow it through time. They, they quit tracking them like that after the 1930s. So at some point, the U.S. Census came up with census tracks. Yeah. So census tracks are these little statistical categor- categories of neighborhoods Oftentimes, you know, ranging from, say, 2,000 to maybe 7,000 people within them, they're, they're not at all equal. And so Lynchburg has got 19 census tracts. And you can roughly, I emphasize roughly, put some of those original color-shaded uh, Hulk neighborhoods into the census tracts. But it, it's kind of a sort of a tough thing to do, simply because you could imagine this tiny little uh, red shaded neighborhood fits into a much larger modern census tract. Or you might take a bigger yellow shaded neighborhood, which cuts across maybe as many as three census tracts. They, they just don't fit. Mm-hmm. 
But what I discovered, it's like this light bulb clicked on after a while. If you realize that you take the red and the yellow shaded neighborhoods, they were all sort of interspersed together. And they, they accounted for about 80% of all the neighborhoods that Hulk assessed back, back in the day. So out of, uh, I think, 32 neighborhoods uh, they assessed, 80% were deemed to be yellow or red, and they were deemed to be uh, not worthy or to be worthy only in a limited sort of a way for those future loans, mm -hmm. okay? So once I realized that, then I realized, ah, I really can track these because the yellow and the red pretty much fit into the existing census tracts, which I look at all the time now, that I have come to refer to, and you used the language earlier, uh, the urban core. Mm -hmm. So the urban core, uh, which is this collection of uh, census tracts, which sort of encircles the downtown business district, including names that we all know, like White Rock and Diamond Hill and College Hill and Tambridge Hill and Garland Hill and Daniels Hill. So all those neighborhoods pretty much uh, comprise what were those original yellow and red shaded neighborhoods. You had two sections of the blue and the green shaded mm -hmm. neighborhoods. So you had, we'll call them the northern section, which uh, consists of today's Rivermont and or Boonesboro neighborhood. So that was like one collection of green and blue shaded uh, original Hulk neighborhoods. Then you had those lying to the west of downtown and the um, Fort Hill, I think it was called Fort Hill Edition and, and the West End area. And so you had sort of three separate groups. And so that's the way I looked at them. The, the West End and uh, Fort Hill Edition, those fit right into today's census tracts, I believe, uh, 8.001 and 10, if I've, I've got the right numbers, working off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. uh, census tracts uh, 1 and 2.01 for the Boonesboro uh, blue and green census tracts, and then census tracts 4, 6, 7, 11, and 19 for all those uh, urban core census tracts, uh, the, the yellow and red shaded neighborhoods. So there's good hard data, modern data, in all the all the census tracts. And so what what I found then, uh, for the grouping together of that uh, urban core, the the former yellow and red shaded neighborhoods, is that they are of course today, not surprisingly, the the most poor neighborhoods. Black poverty uh, is above thirty percent. Black youth poverty is above fifty percent. Mm. And when it reached above 50% last year, I thought, surely it can't go any higher than that. It was like 51.3%. Uh, the most recent numbers are higher yet. It's at 52%. So that means you line up every black kid in town, take every other one of them, and then grab an extra one at the end, and you've got this 52% black youth poverty. Mm. Um, and interestingly... You know, I, I, I keep coming back again and again in my mind, as well as in the paper, to the Deerington neighborhood, which wasn't a red-shaded neighborhood. It was a yellow-shaded neighborhood. And I'm really surprised they actually gave it yellow shading because it had 33% black. I really would have expected that maybe to have been uh, red-shaded, but nevertheless, it was yellow-shaded. And like the other yellow-shaded neighborhoods, for the most part, it was... Uh, you know, the, the people who live there were going to have a limited opportunity to take out loans. Well, today, Darrington is one of the poorest uh, neighborhoods in all of Lynchburg. It, it's approaching 50, not quite there, but it's approaching 
you know, 50% poverty. It's, it's, it's well above 40%. I think it's a little bit less, uh, this most recent uh, round of census numbers. But so you, you spoke of self-fulfilling. I, I would say that that yellow shading in Darrington set it up for, I don't know, failure is the right word, but certainly uh, for economic decline. The Boonesboro neighborhoods, on the other hand, very little poverty there, very low poverty rate, um, less than 5%. And while we, we no longer have the, you know, 0%, 100%, you know, full segregation that we used to have, um, there's not many blacks living in the Boonesboro uh, neighborhoods. There's one of the census tracts, uh, census tract block group uh, 1.3, uh, the northwesternmost census tract block group of census tract 1, there's literally 11 blacks in, in that census tract block group, um, making it have a 0.8% uh, black population there. So for the uh, Boonesboro census tracts, it's, it's mostly white. And when you then shift gears and, and talk about the, um, the urban core, it's mostly black, something like uh, 60, 70 percent black. And, and when you move into certain of the uh, census tract block groups, uh, it, it approaches 100 mm. percent. Now, one of the most interesting things out of all this is when you look at the, that other blue and green shaded area, the West End and uh, Fort Hill addition uh, neighborhoods, today's census tracts, I believe 10 and, and 8.01, if I've got my numbers right, um, that doesn't matter so much. They look a lot more like Lynchburg as a whole. You know, when you think about averages, you know, all these numbers we're talking about are averages. So when you think about Lynchburg's population, for example, it's about 65-ish or so percent white, 28.5% or so black, and then the rest filled in with um, a handful of Asians and uh, Hispanics, not a whole lot there. You might think, well, does any part of Lynchburg actually look like that? Certainly mm -hmm. Boonesboro doesn't look like that. Boonesboro is much more white. The urban core doesn't really look like that. It's, it's much more black. But that West End and Fort Hill Edition actually do look like that. Those numbers pretty much uh, describe what that part of town looks like, about 65-ish or so percent white, 28-some-odd percent black. And very interestingly there, uh, the income numbers are uh, much more equal. Mm. Call it egalitarian, perhaps, if you'd like. Lynchburg's overall median household income is about $43,000. It's, it's a pretty low-income town. So $43,000 does not go very far. You've got uh, numbers way higher than that in Boonesboro, something like 80000 You've got uh, one of the census tract block groups in um, in Census Tract 6, College Hill, less than $20,000, by the way. Try to imagine uh, comporting yourself on a, on a yearly basis trying to get by with less than $20,000. And then there's st stuff in between those extremes. And in between those extremes are, are those other green and blue shaded former Hulk neighborhoods, namely the, the Fort Hill Edition and West End, where white and black incomes there are nearly equal and they're right at the Lynchburg median, right around 42, 43,000. And you may think, ah, there you go. That, that's, that's the part of town where maybe things are looking good. Uh, you got some equality, maybe mixing of, of the two, uh, two races. And, and there, that may well be. But when you stop and think about what can one actually do with 42, 43,000 dollars, 
you suddenly realize that doesn't go very far. There's this study, which I think I referenced in the paper, a study that I think is very useful that's put out by uh, a researcher at uh, MIT by the name of uh, Amy Glassmeyer. Uh, has this uh, living wage uh, indicator for most cities in the country. It's a really useful thing that she's put together. So type in the city that you're interested in. In the case of Lynchburg, what you find out is that our median household income of $43,000 and a little bit of change doesn't buy very many basics. So the basics that uh, Ms. Glassmeyer, Professor Glassmeyer, uh, worries about are things like transportation, daycare, health, housing, uh, clothing, food, those, those kinds of things. And the only kinds of family groupings for which 43000 is sufficient to buy all those basics that you need are family groupings without kids. Mm-hmm. If you don't have kids, $43,000 goes a ways, right? Even, even if you're only making twenty or 30000 that's that's okay if you're by yourself without kids. Any family grouping with kids, you need at least 50,000 or so. And there's just not that many census tracts in Lynchburg where people are making that much. Blacks only have, I believe, a census tract or two. I think it's census tract 17 and 18, which were not part of the original Hulk uh, mapping area. That's out uh, along uh, either either side of um, uh, Timberlake Road. That's probably the wealthiest uh, part of the black community today. Only in those two census tracts uh, do blacks make enough to be above that living wage criteria that uh, Ms. Glassmeyer has. Most, most black neighborhoods uh, do not make enough, especially if you have kids, to cover all those basics. Mm. So even in, even in those uh, sort of egalitarian neighborhoods of... Uh, you know, the Fort Hill edition and West End, that you know, forty-two, forty-three thousand dollars, it just it doesn't go very far. Yeah. Doesn't go very far for the middle-income Lynchburger. So, with the financing now opened up compared to the nineteen thirties, do you see any difference in home ownership rates? Um, the answer to that is no. Very simple, no. Um, black home ownership rates are less than 40% for Lynchburg as a whole, 39 point something, 39.6, I believe. Um, in our earlier part of our conversation, we talked about the fact that when you looked at those earlier red shaded uh, black neighborhoods, there were 10 of those, uh, half were 20% uh, black home ownership, the other half were 40%, so it averages out, averages out to 30. And so you might have thought that you know, over, you know, this 80 plus year span of time that, you know, black home ownership may have um, increased dramatically, but it's still stuck below 40 percent. So there's really been no ground that's been gained kind of literally and figuratively there. So that that was sort of disappointing uh, to see that. Home values, uh, I I drew those from the um, assessor's office. Home values in the Boonesboro area are uh, four times that of those in the uh, urban core. Uh, something like 260 some odd thousand uh, is the average home value in, in Boonesboro. In the urban core, it's uh, around 60. From my office at Randolph College, it's seven tenths of a mile to some of the residences on Bedford Avenue, which was one of the red shaded neighborhoods back in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And you look at home values there, 
Some homes are as uh, little as $30,000, okay? And so that's kind of at the low end of, you know, housing values here in Lynchburg. Of course, you, we've got, you know, multi-million dollar homes spread here and there. The average of, of Boonesboro homes is 260, 270,000. So there's a pretty tremendous uh, wealth gap there. If you think of people's wealth is tied up in their homes, we still have a, a huge wealth gap in this town. So you put this paper out. I think you had an editorial in the paper, and I think you've made a couple of talks about it. Mm-hmm. And how's it been received? Um, it's been, I think, received quite well. Um, seems like when I put you know papers like this out there for public consumption, it takes a while. Um, in part, I'm not much of a self-promoter. But once this information catches on, what I've found is that... Um, People take a lot of interest in it. I, I continue to sort of be amazed that uh, there are folks that are not really aware that Lynchburg has a poverty problem. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a poverty rate, you know, above 20%. It's been there for some while. And people are fascinated. They're disturbed uh, by that. Uh, they want to learn more about it. I'm constantly being asked to give talks to church groups, uh, even city council. I know for a fact that, you know, the city is concerned about these things, though how, how much so and, and what will become of it, I'm not sure. I, I know right now the city's just grappling with, uh, you know, keeping their budget afloat. Yeah. So where, where we go with this uh, you know, from a policymaker's perspective remains to be seen. So I feel like every time you put something out, you know that's going to be well-researched, but you know that's going to be sobering. Right before you read it, you don't do light things. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but like I don't sit down and read a, an able paper or post and go, well, this is going to be light and I'm going to feel real good after reading it. <laughs> and I love context and I love history, so I appreciate what you do. But I imagine if you're someone who's been staying sort of blissfully unaware of history and context and that there's a poverty problem, reading your stuff is tough. Yeah, I, I, I would admit that... Um... This recent work is is heavy and sobering. Um, when I think about you know what we're seeing on the streets today, you know in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and the killing of the man in, in Atlanta, this stuff just goes on day after day after day, and there's a context behind all this that again I, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. There, there's a context for these things. You know, these things don't just happen out of the blue. People don't take to the streets just, oh, here's a chance to take to the streets. Oh, here's a chance to go looting. Mm -hmm. There is pent-up anger. There's pent-up frustration. There's, uh, you know, a feeling of being corralled into dilapidated neighborhoods. Um, You know, the inability, uh, at least formally at one point, uh, because of the government, from being able to move to whatever neighborhood you want to live in, you literally were not allowed to do that. You've got a resegregating of the country. So you've got all this stuff going on. And so it is a rather sober world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And if this work helps to put a little bit of context uh, as to why people are on the street, then I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I attended a couple of the demonstrations here in Lynchburg uh, recently uh, mm-hmm. over the Floyd killing. And, you know, Lynchburg 
you know, it's, there's a spark of activism here. Uh, it's not limited to, you know, New York City and Chicago and such places. Uh, people are upset here. And so there, there's a context in, in each city. Each, each city has got its own unique set of problems, but there's a common set of problems. And, and a lot of it does, in fact, come back to decisions that have been made over the years, in some cases going back 401 years. Yeah. And maybe this will be the time, it's hard to say, uh, when we finally come to grips and, and, and deal with it. Of course, we've said this before. We, we thought yeah. we'd said this back in the late 60s, but yeah. it only accomplished so much. And we keep coming back again and again. And people keep saying, this time it's different. I hope yeah. it is. And if I played some tiny little role with some of my work here in town, all for the good. Is there anything that's making you hopeful? Well, I, I am I am hopeful from some of the things that I'm seeing and hearing here that, you know, when, when I listen to people, you know, of greater, you know, importance than myself say this time it is different, that you've got sustained protests, sustained demonstrations. You've got these Confederate statues, which some people say is heritage, but these are statues of people that were upholding a system that ground down people, that kept people enslaved. Uh, you got statues coming down that we thought were going to be there to the end of time. Mm. There, there is such pressure right now that um, things are coming undone that we thought were entrenched. So um, if that creates a space for those who have been left behind, who have been disenfranchised, to suddenly have greater opportunities and a greater say in their own well-being, then maybe that's a reason for hope. It's, it's sad to think that you got to have such violence and harm bring that about, but I guess nothing good has ever come from taking the easy route here. Hmm. Well, I'm so grateful that you have chosen to spend your time and your energy and your expertise on looking at some really important things right here in our neighborhood, and I think they add a lot to the conversation, so I'm really grateful for that. I appreciate the work that you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So if I'm being totally honest, I was really bummed when I found out I wouldn't be teaching my affordable housing class at Randolph. But after spending a few hours with John this morning, the kids in his class are in for such a treat. He's so good, he's got such a passion for the subject that I want to take the class. I want to actually be a student myself. I hope you've enjoyed John's history lesson about the Lynchburg neighborhood. We'll see you next time.